One Hope Church. So John chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, just want to remember, remind us, we finished last week, John um, chapter 3, the last two verses of John chapter 3, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And then in chapter 4, we're going to have a, a shift. We'll see as um, Jesus travels through Samaria and he meets this woman at a well. And this woman at the well um, you know, needs to know, to know him. And we're going to look at, at that exchange. And then Jesus is dealing with the Samaritans, um, different uh, people group there. So a lot of good stuff in this lesson for us. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll jump right in. So Heavenly Father, we thank you um, for your love for us, your goodness to us. Um, help us this morning as we um, study your word. Give us understanding. Um, help us to understand it uh, for what you um, want us to, to take from it. Um, and to know and to apply um, to our lives individually and collectively uh, this morning. We thank you for your, your word. We thank you for your love. Uh, we thank you for sending us your son Jesus uh, to go to the cross to pay uh, the debt of our sins, a debt we could not pay. So we humbly come before you and acknowledge our frailty, um, and that without you, Jesus, we are nothing. And so we give you praise in your precious name. Amen. Amen. And so it says this in John chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore being wearied from his journey, sat by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, Ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So there's a few things here um, that we want to um, look at and to, to understand uh, this morning. The first is, you know, why did, why did Jesus you know, feel the, the need or why did he have the need to leave Judea and to go back to Galilee? Um, and it's because the Pharisees had heard that he had been making more disciples and baptizing more than John. And so, you know, the Pharisees had viewed John um, as a threat um, to their, their order. And they knew the things that John had said um, about their group, um, which was the most you know, powerful and, and influential religious group in, in Israel at this time. And so then, you know, knowing that he has surpassed John in terms of, of his ministry at this point, you know, the Pharisees are going to turn their attention. And it ultimately comes down to timing because the timing of Jesus to go to the cross 
hasn't come yet. And so he, Jesus is strategic um, in his dealings. He, know, he, he knows that he has come, and he has come for the purpose of death. You know, to go to the cross to pay for our sins, and the grave would not be able to hold him. But he knows for what reason he came to suffer um, for us and for our benefit. But he also needs time with these disciples. He needs some years with them. It's not many years, just like three years with them, in order to prepare them to go and to take his message. Because he has to change their way of thinking. Because their way of thinking had been according to their religious tradition um, you know, and the, the way of the, the old way of the, the law, um, they had been under that their whole lives. That's, that's all they knew. And then Jesus is going to come in and he is going to fulfill the old and replace it with something new. And they need to be prepared for this. And they need to, as we see even in this passage, you know, they have to change their view of, not, of, of Jewish people and of Samaritans and of Gentiles, they have to change their view of other ethnicities. Like everything for them has to undergo this radical shift because Jesus, when he calls his disciples, the teaching of Jesus is actually at odds with the cultural understanding of his disciples as they enter into life with him their understanding is going to be different than Jesus' understanding. And we would, of course, expect that because Jesus sees perfectly and understands perfectly and knows all things perfectly. And he is, yes, he is fully human, but he's also fully God. And he, you know, it, it is his way that they have to enter. You know, Jesus is not entering into anybody else's way. He has his own way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He has his own way, and people have to enter into his way. And so he goes through Samaria. He says he needed to go through Samaria. Now, oftentimes, Jewish people would take the longer route and just go around you know, Samaria so they didn't have to encounter Samaritans. Didn't always do this, but this was... You know, sometimes the case. And yet Jesus, decided, you know, he's going, um, he's going to go through Samaria. And he has a purpose to go through Samaria. He knows what he's going to encounter. He knows who he's going to meet. He knows the why um, in going into Samaria. And he sits down at the well, that, a well that Jacob had dug and given to his son Joseph. Um, and so, I mean, there's, there's history here, right? I mean, this is from a long, long time before um, the time of Jesus. This well has been there. And it says, it's an interesting th thing here. It says he's wearied from his journey. This is the humanity of Jesus, you know, at play. Um, of course, he had the capacity to um, override, you know, his, his humanity, right? An example of that is, when he walks on water, you know, he is overriding, you know, the natural laws of what humans um, do when they go and, and stand, try to stand on water. 
right? He is, uh, he is, you know, using his supernatural ability at that, you know, that point and at other points. But the majority of the time, Jesus, in, you know, for, for our sakes, endured what we would normally endure in those circumstances. And, and he does this, as Hebrews tells us, so that he is a high priest who can sympathize with what it is to be, to be human. He, he knows that we, from his own experience, that we get tired and that we get weary and we go through difficulties and that we suffer. Um, and so he became like us in all ways except for without sin. And so this woman of Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now her reaction is interesting. She says, um, the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It was much more about the fact in her view, you know, it, it, was, it was less of a deal that Jesus was you know, male and that she was female and that they're having this encounter. It was a bigger deal than that for her was, I'm a Samaritan woman. You're a Jewish man. What, you know, why are you, um, how is it that you're, that you're asking, you know, for, for this drink? Part of the reason there is, you know, uh, this, you know, there's an ethnic superiority that the Jewish people viewed themselves over the Samaritans. And so most Jewish men wouldn't want to take a cup of water from a Samaritan woman. Like, it's been defiled at that point because it's been in a Samaritan's hands. There's an ethnic superiority thing that she is used to encountering. That she's surprised, you know, that Jesus isn't holding on to that ethnic superiority as a Jewish man. He, he's different. He's, he's handling that encounter differently than what she would expect. Um, for those who may be unaware, so Samaritans were partially Jewish, partially Gentile. That put them in a really tough spot because the Jewish people looked at them and said, well, you're not fully Jewish, therefore you're, you're below us. And you know, many Gentiles hated Jewish people and so therefore, oh, you've got some Jewish in you. So Gentiles aren't fully Gentiles that don't, you know, with zero Jewish are looking at Samaritans and going, well, being partially Jewish is bad enough. So they're stuck in the middle where basically nobody like them. That's a tough situation to be in. In some ways, it does remind me a little bit of you know, like Kurdish people, you know, today. So they're in partially in, in Turkey and in you know northern um, Iraq and northern Iran and northern Syria. And so the Arabs are not fond of them. Neither are the Turkish. So those, you know, so, I mean, so they're surrounded and in countries where they're the minority and they are. Um, you know, viewed as less than 
because they're not part, you know, they're for the, in, in Iran and Iraq and in Syria, they're not Arab and in Turkey, they're not Turkish. So they're, they're kind of stuck in that, that crunch that happens to people groups. And so that's happened to these Samaritans. And so it's an, it's an ethnic, it's an ethnic thing. You know, and language is really important, and how we talk about things is really important. Um, you know, and I'll just be really brief on this. It's, it's related to this, but it's for our cultural context. You know, we talk about racism, um, races and, and racism a lot. And, and for the most part, um, that's a relatively new construct um, in terms of human human thought. It's really, you know, like 1500s that that sort of language gets used in terms of race and of basically inventing Caucasian um, and then judging others relative to Caucasian, Caucasian. And it was done so for the purpose of justifying North Atlantic slave trade. A lot of that, you know, originates in Portugal and then spreads um, to others, right? So, scripturally, we talk about, much more we talk about one human race because we're all from Adam and Eve, okay? So, we all have the same, you know, first parents. Um, and then, um, we talk about the families of the earth and ethnicities, so you have ethnicities, and we talk about the nations of the earth, and we talk about the languages of the earth. And yes, there are skin color variations, but that's not the emphasis, you know, scripturally. Racism comes along and makes this ugly thing and makes it have to do with skin tone and then putting people in categories related to that. Um, and that was bolstered, those thoughts are, um, were, were made possible largely um, through the, the teaching of evolution. Because evolutionists taught for decades, you know, for, for, for really centuries, but then decades in terms of modern era, that, you know, there's this spontaneous evolution. So you have different, um, you know, groups of people popping up on different parts of the planet spontaneously at different times. And so they were able to say that Caucasians, you know, were not related to Africans or Asians. You see that? What's going on there? It's like you're completely unique and, and separate. The biblical view is we're all connected. We all have the same, you know, first parents. Now, then with DNA, now then the evolutionists had to change because the DNA evidence, you know, is clear uh, in terms of, you know, we're, we're, we have the commonality. And the better science gets... On that issue, it, the closer, it's still off, but the closer it gets to the biblical record. The science and the scripture are not incompatible. It's just as science gets better, it gets closer to what the Bible says. That's the reality 
of the situation. So we say they're not incompatible. If there's a difference, it's the scientists haven't figured out the full story yet. And once they do, they're going to match up with the scripture. And we see that time and time again, you know, I mean, just throughout, you know, history, they'll, you know, those who want to attack the scriptures said, well, this couldn't have happened, or this didn't exist, or this didn't exist. And then they find the archaeological evidence, and then they have to backtrack and go, well, actually, what the Bible said there is, is accurate. I mean, that's happened so many times. So many times. But you can see that damage that those who wanted to either take a, a misguided theological, you know, an anti-biblical stance on ethnicity and turn that into, into racism combined with the evolutionists and their misguided understanding of there being a, a creator God who made one human race and, you know, we're all part of that human race with our different ethnicities and nationalities and languages. And they were able to use that for what end? For oppression, for slavery. You see, and this is what always happens when you have theologians, quote-unquote theologians, who abuse the scripture, or you have scientists who say there is no God, and then you don't have, on either side, you don't have a foundation from which to work with, and always in those situations, the innocent suffer. Always, the innocent suffer. When, when the quote-unquote theologians have wrong agendas, and when the scientists say there is no God, people will suffer. That is, it is inevitable. Because at that point, you don't have the correct ethical and moral foundation that is necessary for humans to treat each other humanely. Without that, without the right foundation, humans will always find ways to treat others inhumanely because they've dehumanized, they've made less than, right? So cause this issue that the Jewish people have here with the Samaritans is they view themselves as superior human beings to these Samaritan human beings or Gentile human beings. And the Gentiles viewed themselves as superior to the Samaritan human beings or to the Jewish human beings. See, there's always a flip of that as well. Whenever one group says, we're superior, it's natural for the other group to say, not to say, no, no, we're actually even. No, the other group comes back and says, no, we're actually ones, the ones who are superior. Because sin doesn't want things equal. Sin always wants you know, things to be radically different between the people groups. And so this is a huge, a huge deal. On a big picture, ethnic level, because we have to remember Jesus, and we're, as we go on here, we'll see this, that Jesus, he's a global savior. Didn't come for, for one ethnicity. Jesus is a global savior for the ethnicities 
for the nations. For the, all the, as Abraham said, that in his seed, all the families, as God promised Abraham, I should say, God promised Abraham that in his seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Who is that seed that all the families of the earth are blessed in? It's Jesus. He's a global savior. But he's not just a global savior. He's an individual savior as this um, Samaritan woman is about to find out. Because Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? So, you know, Jesus is always, he's moving the conversation from the physical, you know, water that your body needs and your body drinks to a conversation about the spiritual water that your spirit needs. And her spirit needs. But she doesn't get the connection. She's still talking about the physical. It's kind of like, so she goes, Jesus, you don't understand the situation here, it seems like, because you don't even have a way to get water out of this well. It's kind of like Nicodemus, you know, in, the, in chapter 3. He's thinking physical. But Jesus is talking spiritual. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. She still doesn't get it. She's still talking physical. She doesn't get that Jesus has made the switch. This is a spiritual conversation. She still views it as physical. She's like, I mean, she's thinking about it like, hey, it would be awesome if I could drink, you know, I could just take this glass of water and drink it down, and I don't have to walk over here to this well anymore and do all the work to get all this water, and I'm, I'm good. That sounds good. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. So he has to take a different approach at this point. Sometimes in conversation, you, know, you have to take a different approach. You know, he's going to get to her a different way. So Jesus said to her in verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. <laughs> um, that's to the point. You know, and Jesus, we have to really understand here, Jesus wasn't, wasn't trying to embarrass her. That wasn't his point. He's not, it's, Jesus isn't playing an I got you game. But Jesus has to expose who she is and who he is for her good. He has to let her know that he knows the full truth about her life and, and her heart. In order for her to have an opportunity to understand who he is. 
and what he can do for her. She, she told the, she, she, she told what we call, you know, the partial truth, right? Like it wasn't an out and out lie, but it certainly wasn't the full story. And I'm pretty confident that every one of us in this room has done that before. Where we've been asked the question and we've said just enough that we think, you know, to, well, I didn't lie. Technically. <laughs> Technically. But it is, in a certain sense, because, you know, it's not, the whole, it's not the whole truth. And obviously, you know, there's some, there's some problems here. And, you know, we don't know exactly what all the, you know, reasons were of why she had had, you know, five husbands and is with somebody now who's not her husband. Um, but she obviously um, has some some difficulties. You know, that's not a happy life. That's not a, you know, there's been a lot of pain, um, you know, in this life. And there's been a lot of, of, of emptiness. And I, and I think we could say without too much speculation that she's, she's looking for a relationship to fill a hole in her heart. You know, and this guy didn't do it. Maybe this one will. This one didn't do it. Maybe this one will. This one five and is on, on to, to dude number six. So perhaps there's, you know, she's, perhaps she's just um, really bad at discerning what the character of, of these guys, that could be part of it. But it's also that she's perhaps looking for something that no other person can do for her. And, and that happens to a lot of people. A lot of people are trying to put a person in the God-shaped hole in their heart that only God can fill. And then, you know, other people are trying to put a career in that place that only God can fill. A lot of people are putting some sort of substance in that place that only God can fill. And so whether it's a relationship, a career, some people have tried to put their kids in a place that only God can fill. And the thing about it, especially when it's another person, it's really not fair to that person. You know, you're trying to get a person to do what only God can do. Well, you know what that person's always going to do? Disappoint you. That person will always disappoint you. That person can't fill the God-shaped hole. Only God can do that. Now, verse 19, she starts to wake up a little bit. She says, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Well, I mean, she perceives that because first time he's ever met her, he knows everything about her. Our, and, and, and let me just stop there just for one second because it is so crucial and I just want, to, want us to just revel in this a minute and enjoy this a minute. That God knows every last detail about my life and about your life. He still loves us. Think about that. 
Jesus knows every bad thing we've ever done. He knows every bad thing we've ever thought. Every word spoken. Every attitude, every single thing. Jesus has been there and has seen all the ugly in us. And still went to the cross for us. Still to make us his own and to call us, you know, that we are, we are co-heirs with him. And that we are part of the family of, of God if we believe in him. Like, that's incredible. That's incredible. And we should just be so thankful. Now, obviously, we don't want to abuse that grace, you know, that we are offered. And say, well, you know, I know everything's going to be okay. But we certainly have great joy that whether whatever problems that we've, that we've had, Jesus knows, has known about every single one of them. And loves us. Loved us enough to go to the cross for us. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So let's back up a little bit and fully grab this. First, she says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say in Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. Why do they say in Jerusalem? Because, you know, that's the place of the temple, right? But Jesus, again, he, tell, he informs this woman, you know, the hour is coming. He's like, he's going to change anything, everything. Like, for you Samaritans, this mountain isn't going to be a special thing anymore. That's not supposed to be a special thing for you anymore. This, this temple in Jerusalem isn't to be a special thing for the Jewish people anymore. And that, that temple you know, was ultimately also going to be destroyed. So what do you have then? So he's basically saying it's, it's not about a place. But now he's very clear when he says, he makes a distinction in terms of, like, doctrinally, in terms of teaching, in terms of understanding. He says, 
you worship what you do not know. He basically says, you know, as, a, as Samaritans collectively as a whole, now it could be individual exceptions, but collectively as a whole, you, you kind of don't know what you're doing. And as critical as Jesus was of many of the Jewish religion, leaders, he says, we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Like, there's a pathway here. There's a pathway here. He's ultimately the fulfillment of it. But Jesus never downplays his Jewishness. And he, he must be because he is the one that is going to sit on the throne of, of David. Like, he is connected. Like, the genealogies that, that we read in, in Matthew and in Luke, like, they're there for a, a reason. And while you have Gentiles in that line, yet there is a, a Jewishness to this whole story. And you can't just eliminate that. You can't just take that away. It's there. For, Jesus says, for salvation is of the Jews, as, as in it's sourced and it comes from. They're the, the avenue of God's salvation. Now, what Jesus is, is going to do is to make it clear and, and the old, there are certainly, we see Gentiles throughout the Old Testament having true faith in God and being in right relationship with God, right? But he's just going to blow the doors open. I mean, Jesus is just blowing the doors open and saying, like making it really clear that, you know, everyone who wants to enter in through him can enter in through him. That's another thing that his disciples needed to learn. Because of their cultural traditions, they didn't, they didn't view the doors of God wide open to anybody who just wanted to walk in. Because of what they were taught in their synagogues, they, they didn't fully get that. Jesus says, verse 23, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So there's two sides to this. There's a, the spirit, you know, there we're, we're talking about spiritual reality. We're talking about authenticity. We're talking about being genuine. And truth, what are we talking about? What actually is according to the way of God. Not what anybody wants to be. So, uh, and, and what I mean by this is somebody can be sincere and sincerely be wrong. It's not just sincerity that's at play. We, we have to have truth. We use this illustration, you know, uh, uh, you know sometimes in terms of, of, of faith, like, you know, you're, you're driving down a hill, there's a stop sign at the bottom of the hill, there's traffic going, you know, across, right? There's semis going across, right? So you trust that when you push that brake pedal, you are going to come to a stop before that stop sign, right? You, you, you trust, okay, I trust. Now, 
if you have quality equipment and you had a good mechanic and you come to the stop sign, you stop, nothing, no wrecks, nothing happens, all good, right? But if you have bad equipment or a mechanic who didn't put it, you know, somebody who said they were a mechanic and, and then put it together properly and you hit that brake and nothing happens and a semi clears you out, at your funeral, people are going to go, well, you know, his sincerity about his brakes made all the difference. That's not how it works. The object of faith is actually what's most important. Jesus is the object. He's the person. He's the one we have our faith in. And so, a little bit of faith in Jesus, you know what I'm saying? You understand what I'm saying there, right? You know, a, a little faith in Jesus is a whole lot better than a whole lot of faith in something that's false. You got a little bit of sincere faith in the right one is a whole lot of better. A whole lot better than a whole lot of faith in the wrong one. But the, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Truth. Spirit and truth. But the truth piece by itself also isn't enough. Because our, our world is full of people who will intellectually agree with the facts that there is one God that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the Son died on the cross for our sins and that he rose from the grave. They will be able to tell you all the, all the information. But that there isn't, but there isn't any spiritual reality there. Because with that, this belief in Jesus is a, is a trust in him and it's, And I want to be really careful that we don't veer into a lordship salvation, you know, but, and I can try to explain that in a minute, um, but there's an allegiance. There's an allegiance to Jesus and that, that trust of him. And this is why we see when people come to Jesus in the Gospels, people who come to him in terms of faith often find themselves where? at his feet, submitted to him in trust and allegiance towards, towards Jesus and his way. So it's not just an intellectual agreement. And sometimes I think, you know, when we're sharing with people who, you know, come from, you know, no religion or other religions, and I think sometimes we think if we can just get them to agree with the facts, that then they're okay. And we can feel good that they're okay. And we need to make sure that we're not just only having the truth without the Spirit.
Now, ultimately, that's between that person, you know, that other, you know, person. But I think sometimes we're too, we can be too quick to where if I can just get the person to agree that they're a sinner, that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, that they need to believe in him, and then they're good to go. Just repeat this prayer after me. All right, you're good, right? Excellent, awesome. And I think we need to be careful that we're making sure the person understands that Jesus, if they, if they truly believe in Jesus, he is going to make them a new creation and he's going to radically change their lives. Some of it's going to be big shifts right away and some of it's going to be little by little throughout life. But Jesus is going to change your world. Like, do you understand that? Before, you're, you, know, you, before you say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe in Jesus. Like, okay, hold on a second. I want you to believe in Jesus because he's the way, the truth, and life. But do you understand that he is not going to be content just to let you live your life your own way from that point forward? That the Spirit of God is always going to be there, pushing you to line up more and more with the character and person of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to be careful there because certainly, I would just say this, certainly there are many people who had no idea fully what they were getting into. They were just like, I'm desperate. I need Jesus. Jesus, I believe in you. You died for me, right? And then, you know, we see the truth that that was a real thing there because as time goes on. So I, I want to be careful that I'm not being too heavy-handed on the front end, but I do want us to be careful to have a, a void like this kind of easy believism where people are, you know, coming down front because of an emotional response or they're, you know, saying a prayer just because somebody, you know, it's kind of like, hey, if I, if I say this thing, then this guy's going to leave me alone, <laughs> you know, and I'll be able to go on with my day sort of thing. So I'll just kind of acquiesce and do this thing that we are, you know, discerning um, as best we can. We're not always going to get it right, uh, but that we don't leave people with a... Um, a false security. Because I think that's what we see so many times in the scriptures. You know, the Pharisees, you ask any of the Pharisees what was going to happen to them when they died. I mean, you talk about false security. You know, Jesus called them a brood of vipers, and they were calling themselves like automatics for the kingdom. Like, if anybody is there, of course we will be. And Jesus is like, you're a bunch of snakes. And the devil's your father. Like, that's, you know, that's how, you, that's how, I mean, that's how Jesus, you know, was with them. And so we need to be, we need to take that, you know, to heart. Um, you know, that that's, that that's there. Let's move forward 27 and pick it up a little bit here. And so at this point, his disciples came and they, they marveled that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? Um, they weren't exactly going to question Jesus at that moment, but it's, no, it's interesting to note, from, you know, again, from their perspective, as Jesus, I think, has 
already prepared them and started to change them. You know, from the woman's perspective, it was more about her being a Samaritan. And from the disciples' perspective, it was more about her, you know, being, you know, a woman. And they're having this one-on-one conversation, which to us doesn't necessarily sound abnormal, but culturally at this time, this isn't exactly the most common of, of interaction. Okay, so again, context is, is important. But it says, The woman then left her water park, went to her way into the city, and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. And therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? (laughs) Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life. But but both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. And I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. So as Jesus has this word for his disciples, again, you know, the disciples are as well, like they view the physical as more pressing than the spiritual. You know, worried about the physical food more than about this, this, this spiritual power um, to sustain. And so, Jesus, you know, tells them in no uncertain terms that he has a, a mission to, to accomplish, that he has work to finish. And then he uses, again, you know, he's always using the sort of illustrations that they're going to be able to easily grab a hold of. And, you know, a lot of those have to do with, you know, it's an agriculturally based society and economy. And so, you know, he's using what they're going to readily understand. And he says, you know, you say there's still four months and then comes the harvest. Um, so he said, you know, you're, you're kind of looking, okay, at some point in the future. But then Jesus says, behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. For they're already white for harvest. Jesus is basically saying the time to be about his work and the time to share this message of salvation is now. You know, don't be putting it off to the future. Um, and he talks about those who, who reap and, and gather and those who sow, you know, who, who plant the seed. Um, he says you're going to rejoice together. One sows and another reaps. He says, I've sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. In this context, you know, there's all the Old Testament prophets and those who had, you know, live correctly for God in the Old Testament times, you know, had, had labored. And they didn't see full fruit from that, but they had labored. And now these disciples at the time, you know, with Jesus are going to come in and they're going to be able to reap and to benefit from all that labor that has taken place. In our context today, you know, you may be talking to somebody 
and share the good news of Jesus with them, and then they respond, right? So they pass from death to life. And you're super stoked because, you know, that person didn't know God, and now they know God. But you may not know that there had been a coworker that had been a faithful testimony, had been working and working and working for years. There may have been a neighbor that had shown kindness for years and had been you know, sharing with them. And yet the situation was right and you did your part. The same might also be true. You might be you know, digging and digging and pulling weeds and pulling weeds and pulling weeds and taking out rocks and preparing that soil for a long time. And that person might even have you know, gone off and you've lost contact or whatever and then in that place and you know, they meet a follower of Jesus and that person shares with them and boom, it happens. But you help prepare, you help that heart to be more tender for the word of God. And so that's, you know, just, we can be on either side of that. You know, there are missionaries, you know, who went to places and they, they lived, you know, 40, 50 years. And they were called failures. Because only one, two, maybe three people have become followers of Jesus. And then the next missionaries come in and there's a, there's a tremendous harvest, a tremendous revival. And, you know, many people come to the Lord. You know what they're going to do together in heaven? They're going to rejoice together. So there's not going to be like this competitive, oh, this was mine and that was yours and, you know, all that kind of nonsense. It was, it's going to be, it's, ours for the glory of God. It's our privilege to rejoice together. We saw this happen for the glory of God. In verse 39, we'll finish at 42, but verse 39 says, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him, that's Jesus, because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word, and then they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. And I think this is just a beautiful little you know, picture here. So they, you know, they're interested. Some of them believe just because she says, he told me every, all that I ever did. And again, it shows you know, the Spirit of God is at work here. Because you know, uh, I doubt this woman had the best reputation in the community as being a reliable source. 
I'm just going to put that as questionable that and not that not right or wrong and placing judgment on that, but just that it would be natural. The woman who has had five husbands told me so and so. Do you believe her? Okay. You can see that there would be a natural tendency not to believe her. But because of the Spirit of God, the power of God at work here, some people, some of these Samaritans, you know, believe because she just said, He told me all that I ever did. And they were like, That's good enough for me. I'll take that. Uh, I'll believe in him too. But he stays two more days and many more believe, and now they all have heard him. So those who heard him, you know, those who had believed on her testimony now have greater confidence because they've heard him directly. Okay. So how does that work today? A lot of times that works this way. You know, the good news of Jesus is preached, whether it's, a group type, you know, setting, a big setting, or if it's just one-on-one and there's somebody who says, I need Jesus. I want to be his, you know, I want to believe in him and I'm, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus because I heard that person's testimony. I heard that person's preaching, you know, about Jesus. And then what do they do? You know, they, they humble themselves and they ask for, for salvation And then they have their own encounter with the true and living God. They have their own encounter. And then as they continue, now that that relationship with God has started, as they continue, they have more and more experiences with God. So it becomes less about this person told me and more about what I have experienced of Jesus and of his word. Because ultimately, you know, we want people to have their full confidence in Jesus Christ. Like that's the ultimate goal, right? We're not, you know, it's like, hey, you may believe the testimony that he's changed my life, but more than that, once you encounter him fully, and more and more. You will have full confidence that it's all true because of your experience with Jesus and his word. So once you've come to Jesus, your faith isn't, you know, I trust this person told me so. because you know him as he is. Isn't that great? Isn't that awesome? That Jesus is big enough to all over the world for all of us to sit at his feet and to learn from him and to experience him and to know even day by day walking with my Savior. But notice this last thing, and we talked about this, Jesus being a global Savior. For we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. 
You see, those Samaritans, before Jesus came there, they didn't know Christ. They didn't know that he was the Savior of the world. And even in this, their sincerity, they were worshiping incorrectly. And they desperately needed Jesus. So Jesus, you know, at the end of his ministry, you know, at the end of John, it talks about specifically about Jesus being, you know, the Savior of all who believe, you know, in him. And it's, a, it's again, that global message um, is there. And then we know the great commission that Jesus gave us to go into all the world and make disciples, you know, of all all of the whole world, really, really the Greek there is, is the ethnicities, the ethnos, all the ethnicities of the world. That that's our message. And why is that the message? Is because the world is lost in false belief. The, the world is, has been taken captive by the ultimate liar. And so there's a necessity to go in to explain that those who, who want to worship must worship in spirit and in truth. And that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by him. Jesus, throughout the scriptures, makes an, an exclusive claim to truth, but it's inclusive that... You know, any, anyone from any place can follow him. So it's exclusive in that it's only through him, but it's inclusive in that anybody, whosoever will. Whosoever will. And that's the beauty of the message, and it also gives us the necessity of the message. God never intended for us, Jesus specifically, never intends for his disciples to just sit in a holy huddle and, and, and not take that message. He does intend for us to be in a holy huddle as we come around the bread and the cup you know, every Sunday. He does intend that for us. But not just that. The intention is that we go from here to out there. We're not just waiting for people to walk in the door and for their lives to be changed. But that we, we are, as God went and looked for the lost sheep, as Jesus gives that parable, that we are instructed to that same role, that we are to go and to seek and to plant, and to you know, till soil, and to reap harvest. And as Jesus said to his disciples throughout his ministry, the harvest fields are white. The biggest lie that, as followers of Jesus, we are, I believe we are prone to believe, is that there isn't a harvest to be had. That it's just, you know, all tough ground. We're in, in, in some places, and in our city, there might be a lot of tough ground. There's still a lot white for harvest. You just have to go hunting, go looking for it, and, and do so intently and prayerfully. And there's a lot of people who are hungry for Jesus. 
They're, they've got that hole in their heart, just like that Samaritan woman. And they're looking for anything in the world to fill it. But there's only one who can. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. No one else can fill it. And so when we saw those, see those people in our world who are trying to fill that God-sized heart with anything else, we know what they need. Because we know the one who's filled us. You know, that's where that spiritual reality has to be there. Like, if I know the one who has filled me, then I know the one who can fill you. Worship him in spirit and in truth. And this city and this world are full of people that the fields are still white with harvest. They're ready. So as we go into this week, let's go get that harvest you know, to do our part. And again, you don't know what side of it you are, but you know you have the job to do in each situation. The key there is, am I obedient and faithful? Whatever role I play in any given situation, am I faithful to do my job in that part? And ultimately, at the end of the day, that's really the only, that's the part, that's the only part you and I can control, folks, is am I obedient to what Jesus asked me to do? And may God help us to see clearly so that we can be obedient. May God help us to see clearly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you humbly. We're so thankful this morning. I'm just so thankful for John chapter 4. That your word says you are no respecter of persons. And we see that in the life of your son and this conversation with a Samaritan woman at a well. A well from old that satisfied the physical thirst temporarily of many people. And we're so thankful that there is a life, eternal life, eternal, satisfying water in your son, Jesus. That those who drink of him may never thirst again. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge you're the only savior we've ever needed. And you're the only Savior we'll ever need. You are the one and only. And as we take the bread and cup and we remember that you are the only one who went to the cross for our sins to pay our debt and that there is life, eternal life for all who believe in your name and we give you thanks. And 
And we also just pray that you would help us to take your message to others who need it, that we would not take more or less than what you have given. And so, Jesus, we thank you this morning. It's in your precious name that we pray. Mm-hmm.